Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have received grace from you and peace from you, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only because of what he has done, it's only because we are in him that we can approach you this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the incredible gift of your word, the incredible revelation of who you are in your word and your plan for salvation and how it unfolds from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end, Genesis to Revelation, and how it culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to your word to behold Jesus' glory, that you would give us eyes to see it, minds that understand the truth that's revealed to us, and hearts that rejoice in the truth that is revealed to us. Lord, it's not enough that the truth is preached. It's not enough that we listen intently, although those things are necessary. Your Spirit must come and work through the Word and work in us. And so we pray that you would, all to the praise of your glory, that we might be radically transformed and live in light of the gospel and our gospel identity in Jesus. We ask this all in his precious name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I imagine you could tell, we are beginning our sermon series through the book of Philippians. And I am really excited about our study through the book of Philippians for two primary reasons. First of all, it's all about my favorite person. No other noun is used more frequently throughout the book of Philippians than the name of Jesus. It's all about him. And it's also about my favorite thing. It's all about joy. Joy, in one form or another, is used 16 times throughout the book of Philippians. And so oftentimes you'll hear the book of Philippians referred to as the epistle of joy. And I think that's an appropriate title for it. I'd like to change a little bit and say it's the epistle of joy in Christ Jesus. Because Philippians is not just all about joy, it reveals to us that the only true source of lasting joy is to be found in Jesus Christ. It's to be found nowhere else. And so I'm excited because I know that it is the Lord's intent to use this book to increase our joy in Christ Jesus. That was the intent for which Paul wrote it, and that's, I believe, the intent for which the Lord is going to use it in us and I can see my joy already increasing in Jesus, and I'm excited to see how it's going to do the same in you as the Spirit works through it. Now, in order for us to experience true joy, we have to know the truth, don't we? That's what Jesus said in John 15, 11. He said, these things I have spoken to you 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is saying he reveals the truth in himself, in his person, and in the word so that our joy may, may be made full. Isn't that amazing? And so he's spoken truth to us. So we see that there's an intimate connection between knowing the truth and experiencing true joy. Well, now you may be wondering, what are the truths that we need to know? Well, two of the most important truths that we need to know and that Scripture reveals to us is who God is and who we are. All throughout the pages of Scripture, you can find truths regarding who God is and who we are. And we also see throughout the pages of Scripture that Satan, from the very beginning, has been espousing lies and getting people to believe them about who God is and about who we are. So we need to be constantly reminded of the truth. And what I want us to look at this morning is specifically the biblical truth of who we are as Christians, what our identity as Christians is, because we far too often believe lies about who we are. And so we need to be reminded of the truth because we lose sight of the biblical truth of who we are so easily, and that affects our joy. Let me give you an example. For me personally, I frequently believe the lie that my identity is found in my performance, in my accomplishments. And so I want to have this sense of measuring up and having other people recognize it. For those of you who know me in the congregation quite well, you know that this is true. And this sin shows up in very specific ways in my life that are rather embarrassing to me, but I'm going to share with you at least one example. Um, I have a Facebook account. Obviously, that's why I'm able to be a fan of Sovereign Grace online. And I've had one over the last couple months, and I've been reconnecting with friends from junior high and high school and college. And as I've been reconnecting with them, I'm, I'm finding this pattern. The first thing that I do is I go to the information about them and I start to look through it and compare myself to where they're at now and where I am. And far too often, because of the circles that I ran into, I'm able to just sit in judgment of them and feel really good about myself. Look how they're spending their time. Look what school they went to. Look what they're doing with their life. They're out partying all the time, hanging out with people, doing all these sorts of things that are immoral. And so I, I feel really good about myself. I get this perverse joy out of the fact that I am performing and accomplishing better things than they are. But there's a flip side to this too because I've had some great friends along the way as well. And so I'll look at their information and I'll be seeing that they're happily married. They're super involved in their kids' lives and have good relationships with them. They've been successful in business. They're involved in their churches and they're clearly walking with the Lord. So when I compare myself to that, I go, man, I am really not measuring up here. I, I am seriously falling short. And so I begin to feel a little dejected. And see, that's the problem with trying to find our identity in our accomplishments or in our performance. And I have to be careful. I'll be honest with you. I've had to fight it all week long to not hinge my entire identity on how well this sermon goes this morning. Isn't that disgusting? Hinging it on that, hinging it all on the gift that God's given me to use for your sake and for the praise of his glorious grace. But I do it. I do it all the time. 
And it destroys my joy because it's not a source of lasting joy because my performance goes up and down. And so my joy rides to the top with it and it comes crashing down with it as well. And that's the way the world thinks. The world thinks, I don't currently like who I am, and so I'm going to strive to recreate myself and attain a new identity. And our joy rises and falls on how well we think we're living up to that identity that we so desperately desire. So my question for you this morning, brothers and sisters, is where are you seeking to find your identity? Let me ask it to you this way to help clarify. What's the one thing, now think about this, what's the one thing that if you had it right now, if you received it this morning, it would make you happy? It would make you deliriously happy. What is it? You don't have to say it out loud. I don't want you to say it out loud. Okay, now maybe you're one of those people that says, oh, oh no, Jason, I'm content. I'm content with where the Lord has me, so I don't, I don't want anything. I, I'm happy in the Lord. Okay, let me ask you this then. What is the one thing that you currently have or possess that if it was taken away from you, it would make you want to give up completely on life? You would have no purpose to live for. Is it the relationships that you do or don't have, whether they be with children or spouse or parents or friends? Is it the love that you do or don't have, the respect that you do or don't have? Do you feel defined by a sin that you've committed? And so to compensate for it, you're trying to do enough good works, constantly performing under the scrutinizing eyes of God? Do you feel defined by your current struggles with sin, whether they be greed or pride or fear or lust or worry or depression or anxiety or laziness or lack of self-control or bitterness or anger? Is it a job that you do or don't have? Is it money that you do or don't have? Is it the power or influence or control that you do or don't have? Is it the possessions that you do or don't have? Because you see, brothers and sisters, whatever you answered to those questions is where you are falsely trying to find your identity. Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't a part of who you are. And I'm not trying to say that they're unimportant, nor am I trying to belittle your pain. But what I am saying is that they are ultimately not your identity. And we all struggle with believing that lie, don't we? So what we need is to constantly be reminded of our true identity, of who we truly are in Christ. Because Jesus is the source of our new gospel identity. Listen to what Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says about your gospel identity. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now listen to this next part. When Christ, who is your life appears, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. Did you hear that? Jesus is our life. Our identity is found in him. And this is essential for us to understand because what we need to know is that our attempts to find our identity in anyone or anything other than Christ is an attempt to rob Jesus of the glory that he alone is due. Because when you're trying to find your identity in something or someone other than Christ, it's based on your works, your performance, your earning it, your meriting it. And so if you attain it, who gets the glory? You do. The focus is on you. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. In the gospel, Jesus says, you have been given a new identity in me. It's a free gift. I've worked for it. I've earned it. I've merited it. And it is yours. So now live out of it. Live out of your gospel identity. Don't try to earn it. And so Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the focus. And Jesus gets the glory because it is in Jesus that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace and our ever-increasing joy. Oh, how we need to be reminded of this constantly, brothers and sisters. We need to be reminded of this and preach it to ourselves and one another daily and hourly. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that the Philippians needed to be reminded of who, where their true identity was found. So in this brief greeting, he reminds them of the glorious truth of their gospel identity. And we're going to see that this morning. But before we jump into the text, let me give you a little historical background um, about this letter. We're going to give you more of this as we continue to preach um, through the letter. But let me give you just enough to understand where we're going today. First of all, who are the authors? If you look at verse 1, it says Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy are the ones that wrote it. Well, who are they? Who is, who is Paul, first of all? Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, was an intense persecutor of the church who was a Pharisee. He would actually go around hunting Christians, have them thrown in prison, and then have them murdered. That's what he did. And then on his way to actually go do one of these little crusades, as you might call it, he was radically converted on the road to Damascus. He had a radical encounter with Jesus. And then he became an apostle, ended up writing two-thirds of the New Testament, and ended up being a church planner who planted churches all over the then-known world. So this incredible man of God is the one that wrote the book of Philippians to the church in Philippi. And secondly, Timothy. Timothy is Paul's true son in the faith. He was raised by his mother and grandmother, taught scripture his whole life, was an incredible man of God, and one, is the, one, of, one of Paul's most faithful um, partners in the gospel. He was actually with Paul when he planted the church in Philippi. And so who are they writing to? Well, if you look at the, the remainder of verse 1, it says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So the Philippians are the recipients. And the Philippian church was the first church that Paul planted in European soil. 
He received a vision from the Lord, which is recorded in Acts 16, where a man from Macedonia appeared in a vision and said, won't you come help us? So Paul understood that to mean that the Lord was calling him to go preach the gospel and plant a church in Philippi. And so he did that. And Paul had a very, and as did Timothy, close relationship with the Philippians because most of them became Christians and then were plugged into the church as a result of Paul's missionary endeavors in Philippi. And so they loved him dearly, and he loved them dearly. And you can see the deep affections that they have for one another running through the entire book. And we're going to see this more as we go through it. And we refer to the book of Philippians as one of Paul's prison letters because he was under house arrest in Rome when he wrote this letter. And he wasn't able to go and visit the Philippians, so he wrote them this letter to encourage them in the faith. It's also a missionary letter because Paul is a missionary who's supported financially by the Philippians. He's out sharing the gospel. He's now under house arrest in Rome, and he writes to them, amongst other things, to, remind, to tell them that the gospel has not been hindered. The gospel is making progress even though he's under house arrest. And so he wants to let them know that. And so since he couldn't be there to encourage them in the faith in person, Paul writes them this letter. And in the first couple verses, we're going to see that he wants to remind them of what their new identity is as Christians, because they could never be reminded of it too frequently, and neither can we. So this morning, as we look at the first two verses of Philippians, I want to answer the question, what is our new identity in Christ? What is our new identity in Christ as Christians? We'll see, first of all, the source of our new identity, and then we'll see what our new identity is. So first of all, the source of our new identity. The, the source of our new identity is the fact that we are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Jesus. This phrase is Paul's favorite way of, of, of referencing the essence of what it means to be a Christian. All throughout the various books that he's written to various churches, he always refers to them as being in Christ. And so it's very essential for us to understand what he means by this because our new identity, the new identity we're going to talk about that we have as Christians, is only for those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then this is not your identity. So you may be wondering, well, what's the other option? If I'm not in Christ and that's not my identity, then, then who am I? What's the source of my identity? You are in Adam if you're not in Christ. Those are the two biblical options. You're either in Christ and you're in Adam. So what does that mean? Well, let me take, first of all, what does it mean to be in Adam? In order to answer that question, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning. We have to go back to Genesis. Um, God creates everything out of nothing. He creates Adam and Eve and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over all that he's created. And this is, this is paradise. This is Eden. Everything's perfect. And God gives them one command. He tells them, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? You guys know the story. They ate of the tree they sin, they disobey God, they try to find their identity outside of their relationship with God, apart from him. So Adam sinned, he fell. But guess what? Adam's sin didn't just affect him. 
It affected the whole world. This whole world is now fallen and marred by sin. We're reminded of this every single day of our lives as we work. It's now toil, isn't it? It's not easy. We have to work by the sweat of our brow. It's difficult. Work isn't a result of the fall. The fact that work is now hard and that our plans are thwarted is a result of the fall. For you mothers in the congregation, you know that childbearing is difficult. Its pain was increased as a result of the fall. And we're all going to die, every single one of us. That's a result of the fall. It affects all of us. And guess what? Not only that, it also affects me. When Adam fell, I fell. So that when I was born, when I came into this world, I came into it a sinner. I wasn't born with the choice that Adam had. Adam was created, given the the command to obey or not, and he could choose either one. I didn't have that choice. I was born a sinner. And so were all of you. Paul is abundantly clear on this in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, which Russ read us this morning, so I'm not going to take the time to read through it again. But if you want to write that down and check it out, it's abundantly clear that Adam's fall was our fall. Adam's sin was our sin. So being in Adam means that Adam represents us in a legal sense. In this country, we elect officials to represent us in the realm of government. And the decisions that they make, they make on our behalf. And they affect us. It's the same way with Adam. He represents us in the garden. So when we were unbelievers and we were in Adam, our union with Adam, the fact that we're united with him, was the source of our identity. We were sinners We were slaves of sin, and we were children of the devil. Unbeliever, if you're here with us this morning, that is currently your identity. Believers here this morning with us, that used to be our identity. But that's not the rest of the story, is it? It doesn't end with the fall. Shortly after the fall, what does God do? He promises that he's going to send a redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent. A great hero around which all of history will revolve. The great prophet, priest, and king. The one to whom all of the Old Testament foreshadowed and pointed to. Jesus, the Christ. And so then he came. The Father sent him. Jesus came And he lived the perfect life that God required of us. But we could not live because we were fallen in Adam. Jesus lived that perfect life in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. The death that you and I deserved. He experienced the hell that you and I deserved on the cross. Experiencing the fullness of the Father's wrath for our sin. Because we were fallen in Adam. And then he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand. And he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has come and opened up our eyes and given us new hearts. And given us the gift of faith. And we have exercised that gift of faith. And through that exercise of faith, we have become united with Christ. So that we are now in Christ. Just as we were once in Adam... And Adam represented us, so too now we are in Christ. And Christ is the one that represents us. 
Whereas before we were believers, before the Holy Spirit regenerated our hearts, our identity was found in Adam as sinners and slaves of sin and children of the devil. Now in Jesus, through our union with him, we are saints and we are slaves of Christ Jesus and we are children of God. We are no longer in Adam. He is no longer the source of our identity. We are now in Christ, and he is the source of our identity. So you can see why Paul loves to use this term, because it is rich with theological meaning and spiritual truth. And so we should be overwhelmed by the fact that we who were once in Adam are now in Christ, because that is the source of our new identity. So we've seen what the source is. Now what is our new identity? Well, first of all, we are saints in Christ Jesus. We are saints in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And the word, the Greek word for saints here literally means set apart by God or holy. And I think it's important that we realize that Paul is not calling them saints primarily because they are living ethical lives or lives of holiness. He's calling them saints primarily because God has set them apart. He has chosen them to be in a special relationship with him. So the emphasis is not so much on what they have done or the fact that now they're living holy lives. The emphasis is on what God has done in graciously calling them to himself. Think about the people of Israel in the Old Testament. What are they referred to in the Old Testament? God calls them what? His holy people or a holy nation. Now God called them, did God call them to himself and set them apart to be in a special relationship with him because of how good or moral they were? No, it's in spite of the fact that they were fallen. The reason that they were set apart as holy is because God set them apart by choosing them. It wasn't because of anything unique or special in them. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Moses is telling the people of Israel why God chose them, and this is what he says. For you are a people Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now why? Why has he chosen them? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For quite the opposite was true. You were the opposite. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Israel wasn't set apart because of anything intrinsic in them. Israel was set apart because God graciously made them the object of his loving kindness. It wasn't because they were so irresistibly lovable. 
We need to keep this in mind because in our day and age when we use the word saints or holy, it's almost a derogatory term. Oh, you're holier than thou. Or we use it genuinely for those people that are like a super spiritual elite class of Christians, the ones that we can't really relate to. And that's the way the Roman Catholic Church uses it. They have St. Francis of Assisi and St. Augustine, and they're even thinking about making Mother Teresa a saint. But that is not the way the term is used in the Bible. It's used over 60 times, and every time it refers to all believers, all those who are in Christ. So I don't mind us using the term saint, but let's use it for everyone, for all of us who are in Christ. You can now refer to me as St. Jason. That's right. Only because I'm in Christ. It's not because of my works. It's not because of what I have done. It's by God's grace. And it's only because I'm united with Christ and my sins are forgiven by his death on the cross and I'm, in, and I'm reckoned righteous in him. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. That's why I'm a saint. It's God's grace. That's why Paul says in verse two, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of God's grace that we are set apart as saints. That is our new gospel identity in Christ. Now why is this important? Why does Paul remind the Christians in Philippi that part of their identity in Christ is that they're saints? Why do we need to be reminded of that? Because what's going to happen is, even though even though we're now saints in Christ Jesus, the enemy, the flesh, and the world, and the devil are going to try to flaunt the sins that you've committed in the past or the ones that you know you're going to commit in the future. They're going to flaunt those in your face. And they're going to try to accuse you and condemn you and say, you are a sinner, see? You're still a sinner. That's your ultimate identity. You still must be an Adam. No Christian could ever sin that way. And so he's going to try to accuse you and condemn you. And that's when you say, yes, that is a heinous sin that is worthy of the wrath of God. But I'm no longer in Adam. I'm in Jesus now. And Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. He experienced the wrath of the Father on the cross so that I don't have to. And I've been clothed with Jesus' righteousness so I'm justified before the Father. We have to be saying that because otherwise the enemy is going to try to make you think and believe the lie that you are defined and identified by the sins that you've committed. And that's where you have to say, I'm in Christ Jesus and I am a saint. So we've seen, first of all, the first aspect of our new identity in Jesus is that we are saints in Christ Jesus. What's the second aspect? Secondly, we are slaves of Christ Jesus. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. Now the Greek word for servants there is actually best translated slave or bondservant. So Paul is literally calling himself a slave here, and he does this in some of his other epistles as well. And what he's saying is that he's a slave of Christ. He's been bought with a price, and he's not his own. He's now Jesus' possession, Jesus' property, because Jesus has bought him with the price of his life and his death. 
Now, Paul adds the qualifier of Christ Jesus. He doesn't just call himself a slave because the truth is we're all slaves. All of us are slaves. In Romans 6, Paul makes it abundantly clear that you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. There are no other two options. Jesus makes the same thing plain in Matthew 6, 24, when he says, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you're going to serve a master, and you're going to be the slave of your master. So the question is, who's your master? Well, the only way you can know who your master is is by saying, am I in Adam or am I in Christ? Because if you're in Adam, if you're an unbeliever this morning, Satan is your master and you are a slave of sin, the wages of which are death. Now, believers, that's a bleak outlook, but it's true. It's what the Bible says. Believers, this used to be true of us. It used to be true of us. That used to be our identity. But then Christ rescued you and our old self was crucified on the cross with Christ so that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, alive to God through Christ Jesus. And we have now been brought to life and we have a new heart and new desires and new passions in Christ. Because he lives, we live as well. So now Jesus is your master, and you're a slave of righteousness, the wages of which are life. And that's our gospel identity, the fact that we're slaves of Christ Jesus, our Lord and master. Now you may be wondering again, why is this important? Why does Paul point this out to the Philippians? Why do we need to be reminded of the fact that we are slaves of Christ Jesus and slaves of righteousness? Because even though the dominion of sin has been broken in our lives, its presence has not fully and finally been removed from us, has it? Not only around us, but in us. So we still have this struggle with sin. The flesh is waging against the spirit, and the spirit is waging against the flesh so that we sometimes find ourselves doing what we don't want to do. And so what's going to happen is in that struggle and in the midst of that sin, the devil is going to come, the flesh is going to come, the world is going to try to tell you that the sin that you struggle with is what defines you, is what defines you. I run into people that say this all the time. They, they'll, they'll do some sin, they'll have some sin pattern, and they'll just say, well, that's the way I am. I'm a worrier. I'm fearful all the time. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a gambler. And I'm not trying to belittle the fact that you may struggle with that sin, but that's not your identity. Your identity is that you're a slave of Christ Jesus. He's bought you with a price, and you've now been given a new heart. So you're a slave of righteousness. And so you will change. You can change as you work and use the means of grace. You know that the Lord will bring about growth in you because you're a slave of Christ Jesus. You're not a slave of the devil anymore, as you were when you were in Adam. You are now in Christ, and a slave of Christ Jesus, a slave of righteousness. I love what Paul says when he talks about, he lists all these sins, um, and then he tells the Corinthians, such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So don't listen to the lies. Know that your identity, my identity is not our sin, or the sins that we struggle with. It's in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In Him, I am His slave. And it's only in being His slave that true freedom can be found. So we've seen we're saints in Christ Jesus. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. And finally, we are children of God. We are children of God. In verse 2, Paul says, grace to you and peace from who? From God our Father. Here Paul reminds the Philippians of the astounding truth that since they are now in Christ, united with Christ, they are also adopted as sons of God. Whereas they used to be children of the devil, the devil being their father, that's what John 8 says, they are now God's children. God is now their father. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now having an understanding of how adoption worked in Paul's day will go a long way for helping us appreciate how God went about adopting us. Because in Paul's day, adoption was used, adoption was used by wealthy people who didn't have any heirs. Most of the time they weren't able to have children um, in these cases. And so what they would do is they would go find a good um, moral young man and they would begin training him and run him through all these tests and make sure that he had good sound character. And then after he passed all those tests and they approved, he then received his new identity and he was adopted. He was made the heir of the estate and he would carry on the family name once um, his adopted parents had passed away. So the adoption was based on what? It was based on performance. It was a works-based adoption. And that's not the way that God has adopted us. If God adopted us based on who we were and our performance when he adopted us, that we wouldn't be adopted. He wouldn't have chosen us because we were in Adam and we were sinners and we were slaves of sin. We were slaves of our master, the devil, and we were children of the devil. Who wants to have someone like that be adopted in their family? Nobody. And yet that's who God adopted us when we were in that state. And see, it's not based on our works. It's based on the works of Jesus. It's based on the works of Jesus. So that's our identity now. Paul's saying that we have been adopted, made sons of God, brought into God's family, made heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ based on what Jesus has done based on the fact that he has redeemed us. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. Jesus did. And so now the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God, and we cry out, Abba, 
Father. The Apostle John was so enraptured by this truth that he penned, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. That is our identity in Jesus. Our relationship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit as children, is who we are. That's our identity. That's the relationship that ultimately defines us. That's the relationship in which we find our ultimate identity. God is our Father, and we are His children. Now, why does Paul remind the Philippians of this? Why do we need to be reminded of this, that this is our new gospel identity as the children of God? Because it's so easy for us, isn't it, brothers and sisters, to find our identity in our earthly relationships? Perhaps you've never had the close relationship with your mom or dad that you've always wanted, and so you've always had this hunger for, for their approval. Perhaps you've never really had close friends, and you long for it. You sense that ache within you. Perhaps you're a single person who desperately wants to get married. Or a married person whose marriage didn't quite turn out the way that you thought it would. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you're the parent that has an estranged relationship with your child. Maybe you're the parent who's dealing with an empty nest. Or perhaps you've lost a child in the past. Or maybe on the flip side, all of your relationships are great. You had a great childhood, great marriage, great relationship with your kids. You have great friendships. But hear this, no matter how good or bad, unfulfilling or fulfilling your relationships are, that is not where your ultimate identity is found. Are those relationships good? Are they a blessing from God? Yes. Is it painful when they're not there? Yes. But that's not your ultimate identity. The ultimate relationship that defines you is the fact that you are a child of God in Christ Jesus. And He is your father and that won't ever change no matter what the relationship the status of your relationships is that never changes and so brothers and sisters as we we see that our new identity is in jesus christ he's the source of our identity adam is no longer the source of our identity we're not in him we have much to rejoice over much to rejoice over because whereas in Adam we used to be sinners, that used to be our identity and what defined us, now in Christ Jesus we are saints, reconciled to the Father through His death and clothed in His perfect righteousness. And so when the enemy comes and taunts you and tries to accuse you of your sin, you can say, I'm not defined by that. I'm defined by my new life in Jesus. My identity is as a saint in Christ Jesus. And as we were slaves of sin, slaves of our master, Satan, in Adam, now in Christ Jesus, we are his slaves. We are slaves of righteousness. And that's where true freedom is found because when we were slaves of sin, we could not obey God. And now that we are slaves of Christ Jesus, we have the freedom to relate with him and not feel like we're trying to win his approval, 
but know that we're living out of the fact that we have his approval. And we know that we will make progress as we fight against sin as we should and as we will because we're slaves of Jesus and slaves of righteousness. And finally, whereas in Adam we were once children of the devil, as offensive as that sounds, that's who we were. Children of the devil, the devil being our father, now in Christ Jesus, we are children of God. God is our father. And that's the relationship that defines us. It's not no other earthly relationship, the one that you have or the one that you lack, the one that you want or the one that you currently possess and if you lost it, you feel like your life would fall apart and you can't go on. That's not your identity anymore. That's not what defines you ultimately. The fact that you are a child of God is your new identity. In Christ Jesus, we are saints. We are slaves of Christ Jesus and we are children of God. And lastly, For you out there who are unbelievers, I love you, and so does God. And so I want to tell you the truth. You are in Adam. That's the source of your identity. I don't care how good your life is. I don't care how much money you have, how happy you are, how content you are, how much you love your job. I don't care where you're trying to find your identity. Let me tell you what your true identity is. This is from God. You are in Adam, and you are a sinner. That's your identity. And you are a slave of sin. You can't do the opposite. You can't do otherwise. You are a slave of sin. You are shackled in it. And you are a child of the devil. That's what John 8 calls you. And you go around doing the will of your father. But the good news this morning is that Jesus offers you an identity that you don't have to try to earn. That you don't have to try to merit or accomplish It's given to you freely. And the identity that I've talked about that is believers can be yours. And so I plead with you as an ambassador for Christ, do that this morning. If you sense the Holy Spirit moving in you, don't try to silence him. Don't turn away from him. Listen to that and turn to Jesus and experience the incredible riches of the identity that will be yours in Jesus, possessing Jesus, who he is. And so whether you're a believer this morning or an unbeliever, I hope that you'll heed the words of Jesus when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are trying to earn your identity, trying to perform well enough to recreate yourself or earn God's approval, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus will give you rest, all to the praise of his glorious grace and our ever-increasing joy. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by the fact that we can call you our Father. We know it's not anything that we've earned, it's not anything that we've merited. It's been freely given to us 
as a gift, given the fact that we are united with Christ. We're overwhelmed by your grace, Father, in the fact that when we were lost in Adam, when we were sinners and slaves of unrighteousness and children of the devil, when we were at enmity with God and we hated God, in that state you reached out and you saved us. You regenerated our hearts, gave us the gift of faith, and we exercised it. And we've been united with Christ, and now in him we are saints and slaves and children, your children. And so, Father, I pray that as we meditate on these truths, that you would take them and that you would radically transform our hearts, that you would point out to us where we are falsely trying to find our identity, that we would see that that's nothing, less than, nothing more than idolatry, turning to something or someone or someone else to try to find our security and our satisfaction when it can only be found in Jesus. And we thank you that it's been freely given to us as a gift. We rejoice in that and we praise you. We cannot help but respond with thanksgiving and joy in light of this incredible gospel and the gospel truth of who we are now in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, Lord that you would empower us by your spirit to rest and rejoice in our gospel identity, all to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.